0: Would you please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, where we're continuing in our study of the book of Romans in the 8th chapter, and I want you to look at the very first verse. We're going to start at the, the very first verse, because uh, when we study Romans chapter 8, and we read all the negative stuff about sin, about putting to death the deeds of the body, executing the deeds of the body, and the mindset on the flesh cannot please God. We have to keep in mind the Apostle Paul's purpose for writing this chapter. Paul's overall purpose is not the negative stuff. He includes in this chapter, you know, there's all this stuff we have to live with, we have to go through on a moment-by-moment basis. We have to keep in mind that his purpose for writing Romans chapter 8 is to give us assurance and certainty about our final salvation. The theme is assurance and certainty. So look at uh, verse 1 of Romans chapter 8 again. He says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There never will and there never can be. The chapter begins with no condemnation. And then remember that it ends with no separation. Turn over to the 37th verse. Verse 37. And in all these things, we what? We overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. And then He says in verse 38 For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No separation, no condemnation. That's the conclusion and Paul has been proving it step by step, stage by stage from the very beginning of this chapter. So when we come to verse 10, verses 10 through 13 of Romans chapter 8, Paul now explains two major consequences, two things that happen because the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. Two things that happen on account of the indwelling Spirit. And we see the first consequence in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, Paul here paints a picture of a Christian as he or she, as we are in this life. This is the definition of a Christian. Verse 10 is an exact definition or description of what we are now. And then we'll see in verse 11 a description of what's going to happen to us, what we shall be, what we are now, and what we shall be. So notice, first of all, that Paul says what we are now at the end of verse 10. The Spirit is alive. Literally, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. This is an understanding of who we are as Christians in the here and now. In our spirit, because the spirit is in us, the spirit is life, then we are given life. He said in verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So here is a man or a woman in Christ, one who is born again, they are given new life, they are alive, Whereas before, remember it said that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, they weren't interested in the things of God. Not interested. The, the, the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. They can't understand them because they didn't have the Spirit of God. And so in our spirit, as Christians, we are alive. The people without the Spirit, they are, they are dead. But now we are alive in Christ because he has imputed his righteousness to us. In other words, the Spirit of God has come to dwell within us. We are alive. If you are in Christ, that is a description of who you are in the here and now. But while that is true of us in the spirit, it's not true of us in the body, is it? The body is dead because of sin. And that is the position of every Christian. While we are in this life, while we are in this world, that will be the position of every Christian. In the spirit, we are alive, but in the body, we're considered dead. According to the first chapter of Ephesians, if you will read to that, spiritually, we are seated in heavenly places now. We're seated with Christ now. We have been made alive with Christ now. We have been raised with him now. We have redemption through his blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 1 when you get the opportunity. But while we are in this life, while we are in this world, sin remains in the body. And what does that mean? We constantly have to fight it. And Paul tells us how to fight it when we get to verses 12 through 13. But we have to have... The understanding of this, in the here and now, the body is dead because of sin. There's no such thing as eradication of sin in this life, in this world. No such thing. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that they can reach what they call entire sanctification. And they can be without sin. Wrong. (laughs) It It just won't happen. There's no such thing as sin taken right out of the person. Now sin is taken out of our spirit but not out of of the body. And so this is the experience of Christians at all times. This is the picture of the Christian in the here and now. As a Christian, we have to fight against sin. And so we are exhorted in other places to watch and, and pray. Now we, we might think this is discouraging. You know, how how do we how do we do this? We wonder Why do I get this trouble with sin? Romans 6 said that we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Well, why do I have trouble with sin? Why do I get up in the morning and all of a sudden, you know, I have these thoughts or I see this thing or I do this, you know. Why all this? It's because sin is left in the body. Now, that does not mean you're not responsible for your sin. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that you don't need to be troubled over your sin in the sense that there is no sin that can take away your salvation. No sin that can take you out of Christ. No sin that's going to make the Holy Spirit leave you and depart and go someplace else. He's given as a pledge, as a a guarantee. And the fact that you are conscious about the sin within you, and you may be discouraged about the sin within you, and the fact that you are... Conscious of the strength of the sin within you shouldn't make you worry about your salvation. It shouldn't make you worry whether you are saved or not. Why? There is no condemnation. There is no separation. Sin, the sin's power has been been broken. And so now as a Christian living in the spirit, alive in the spirit, dead because of sin in, in the body... We have this kind of rear guard action taking place where we go on fighting. The war has been won, the victory is assured, but we must constantly fight the battle with sin that is left in the body. In the here and now, we fight the battle with sin. Paul told us that in Romans 6. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. How do you do that? You fight against it. Don't let it don't obey its lust how you do that you fight against it but says go on presenting your members of your body don't go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of, of righteousness so that is the condition of every christian that is our condition in the here and now already saved saved in the spirit but sin remains in the body why the body is yet to be saved so that's why Paul continues in verse 11 of Romans chapter 8 with the ultimate destiny of the body. The body's not there yet, right? But if the spirit of him, verse 11, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, yep, yeah, we got that, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also, what, give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, the life given to our mortal bodies is yet to come. In this life, in our present condition, we're left with disease and death and the here and now in our mortal body. Now in verse 11, we come to the resurrection, to the, the glorification of our body. The Holy Spirit dwells in our body. Give us, give it, Paul has given us assurance. He's, he's showing us why we should be rejoicing. We're already saved in spirit. And we will be one day saved in body. Our bodies need to be made really alive. So I want to, want you to turn to a couple passages of scripture in this over to the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> It's 2 Corinthians here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first verse. This tremendous passage of Scripture that tells us about the the glorification of our bodies. He's he's going to call our physical body a tent. We now live in a tent. Whereas the glorified body that we will receive in heaven is a building from God not made with hands. Verse verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that the earthly tent which is our house is torn down... That is, the tent structure that houses us is torn down if it's destroyed. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. In the here and now, we live in a tent. Our spirit that is alive is living in a temporary structure that's really not very good. You know, as kids, I used to think it's really great, we'd put a tent out in the backyard, we'd go to Cascade, we'd stay in a tent for a while. And and that worked pretty well until it started pouring down rain, and there was thunder and lightning, and then our tents would wear out, and we'd have to get a new one. Our human bodies are susceptible to disease, wear and tear, susceptible to the sins of the body, and on account of sin, the physical body is dying. The body began to die the moment you were born. Dr. Dar- Dr. Lloyd-Jones has put it this way. He's a physician as well as a pastor. He says, the moment we enter into this world and begin to live, we also begin to die. Your first breath is one of the last you'll ever take. The principle of decay leading to death is in every one of us. In other words, if we're going to be suited for heaven, we need to have a body that's suited for heaven. One that can enjoy and participate in everything that heaven has to offer. We need a body that's able to receive all that God has for us for all eternity. So we will have a resurrection body. We will have a house, a glorified body that's not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And and this does not mean that God's just going to take our dead bodies and revivify them that is give them kind of life or resuscitate them and so restore them to our our present material existence that doesn't do us any good to just take our bodies and make our human physical bodies new again no reformation needs transformation the raising and changing of our bodies into a new and glorious vehicle one that's a, in keeping with our personality and who we are, there's resurrection is the liberation from all frailty, the liberation from all disease, pain, decay, and death. What is mortal is swallowed up with life. Paul said in First Corinthians 15 that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What do we got to do? He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we all will be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must put on the immortality. And so the first consequence of the indwelling spirit is that uh, we have life in the spirit and then one day we will have our bodily resurrection, and we will be given a body for eternity that's in keeping with the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ. But now we come to a second consequence of the dwelling in us of God in Christ through the Spirit. The first is in terms of life. The second, Paul uses a different word, or an interesting word that has to do with debt or obligation. So go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. One of the consequences is this debt that we owe. Verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, or under debt, or have a debt, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. The word translated obligation in some of the translations is the word debt. In in the first chapter of Romans chapter 14, When Paul was giving us, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God unto salvation, Paul says there also that he was given a debt when he was saved, an obligation. That obligation was to proclaim the gospel. When we are saved, we are given an obligation to proclaim the gospel to others. And here, Paul is saying, in addition to the debt, the obligation to share the gospel, we have an obligation to live a righteous life. We now have no obligation to the sinful nature to live according to it. We've been freed from sin. It has no claim on us. We owe it nothing. Rather, our obligation now is to the Spirit of God, to live according to his desires, to live according to his dictates. And Paul's point seems to be this. If the indwelling Spirit has given us life, which he has, our spirit is alive, then we cannot possibly live according to the flesh since that way lies death. In other words, how can we possess life and court death simultaneously? Paul would say that that's ludicrous. It's unthinkable. We are in debt to the indwelling spirit of life. We are obligated to live out our God-given life and put to death everything which threatens it or is incompatible with it. And so in verse 13, Paul gives us a solemn life-at-death alternative on how we are to live. He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a kind of life which leads to death, and there's a kind of life... (laughs) Let me turn that around, because there's a kind of life that leads to death, and there's a kind of death which leads... To life. Now we come to a neglected topic here, and it shouldn't be neglected, and that is the topic of mortification. How many of you heard of mortification of sin, mortification of of the soul? Yeah, we, we don't talk about that anymore. Mortification is the process of putting to death the body's misdeeds. We don't hear much about that, but our evangelical forefathers wrote volumes on that. John Owen's classic work, The Mortification of Sin, is still worth reading and applying to our lives. So we're going to take what has taken volumes theologically to write over the the centuries. And we're going to, in just a few minutes, boil that down to three truths that Paul gives us here about mortification. And it really is the application here. What is mortification? Mortification is putting to death the deeds of the body. In fact, the verb that Paul uses here normally means to kill someone, to hand somebody over to be killed, especially of the death sentence and its execution. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul has called it the crucifixion of our fallen nature with all its passions and desires. That's Galatians 5.24. And this is really Paul's elaboration on Jesus' own summons, What did Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, since the Romans were compelled to condemn criminal to carry his own cross and take it to the site of crucifixion, to carry our cross is symbolic of following Jesus Where to the place of execution. So we follow Jesus to the place of execution. We ask, what are we to put to death there? You know, oftentimes to think of the cross, well, I have my cross to bear, you know, as if suffering, those kind of things. And yeah, that's kind of a cross. But the cross that Jesus is talking about is go to that place of execution and put something to death. Kill it. And what are we to put to death there at the cross? Paul explains it's the misdeeds of the body. That is, every use of our body, every use of our eyes, ears, mouth, hands, or feet, which serves ourselves instead of God and other people, we are to put that to death. We are to take our misdeeds to the place of crucifixion and execute them on the spot. So that brings us to the second question. Well, how does this mortification take place? And first of all, we need to realize and understand that this is something we have to do. We have to do it. We have an obligation to do it, It's not a question of dying or being put to death, but it's the question of what are we going to put to death? We are to put to death sin. We are to kill it. We are to crucify it. It's the work of mortification. We can't be passive in this, waiting for it to be done to us or for us. On the contrary, we are responsible for putting evil to death. Now, true immediately, Paul adds that We can put to death the misdeeds of the body only by the Spirit, only by the Holy Spirit's power, for only He can give us the desire, only He can give us the determination and discipline to reject evil. We need to completely depend upon Him, but nevertheless, we must take the initiative to act. So how do we do this? How do we kill sin? One answer is negative, and the other is positive. From the negative... We must totally repudiate everything we know to be wrong and not even think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We must totally repudiate everything we know to be wrong and not even think about how to gratify the sins of our nature. Paul said in Romans 13:14, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. You know, this is not an unhealthy form of repression, as somebody said, pretending that evil does not exist or, and refusing to face it. It's really the opposite. We have to take the sin, we have to pull it out, we have to look at it, we have to denounce it, we have to hate it for what it is, and then we really have to deal with it. You know, Jesus put it very graphically when he expressed it. He said we must gouge out our offending eye cut off our offending hand or foot. That is if temptation when it comes to us. I say if temptation. When temptation comes to us through what we see, what we handle, or what we visit, then we must be ruthless in not looking at it. Ruthless in not touching. Not going. Ruthless in controlling the very approaches of sin. That's mortification from the negative. But there's a positive. Positively We set our minds. That's what Paul said in verse 5 of Romans 8. We are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Set our hearts on things above and occupy our thoughts, as Philippians says, with what is noble, right, pure, and lovely. In this way, mortification, which is putting evil to death, and aspiration, hungering and thirsting for what is good, are counterparts. So in verses 5 and 6 of Romans 8, where it says we are to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, and in verse 13, we are to put to death the deeds of the body. The first is aspiration, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. The second is mortification, putting to death the deeds of the body. And both verbs, put to death and set our minds, are in the present tense. In other words, they're continuous. We are to keep on putting to death the deeds of the body And setting our mind on the things of the Spirit. So the third question that Paul clarifies is, why should we practice mortification? The idea of mortification, it sounds like an unpleasant, uncongenial, austere, and even painful business to deal with sin. John Stott said it runs counter to our natural tendency to soft and lazy indulgence. So. John Stott points out two motivations for putting the deeds of the body to death. He says if we are engaged to it, to engage in it, we need strong motivation. And the first motive is that we've already seen we have an obligation to the indwelling spirit of life to fight against sin. Since the spirit of God lives in us, we are given an obligation to live a righteous life. Paul says we have no obligation to the sinful nature to live according to it. It has no claim on us. We owe it nothing. Rather, our obligation is to the the Spirit of God. And that brings us to the second motivation for killing sin in our lives. The other motivation on what Paul now insists is that mortification is the only road to life. Putting death to sin is the only road to life. And he uses a really great word here in the Greek, zesesthe. Zesesthe, which is a little bit hard to say, but literally it means you will live. You will live. If you do this, you will live. Now remember, Paul is not saying if you put sin to death, if you fight against sin, if you crucify the sins of the flesh, that uh, you're going to gain your salvation. No, remember, that's why we started where we did, because the salvation issue is already settled. So what kind of life is Paul talking about here? Because we know that eternal life is a free gift. It's an undeserved gift. And now it sounds like he's making life a reward for self-denial. Now, using the word life here, he's not referring to what we call eternal life or salvation or those kind of things. He's really alluding to what we're going to be talking about next Sunday. If you look at verse 14... This is the kind of life we who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It's life as a child of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you received a what? A spirit of adoption. It's life as being adopted into God's family. It's the life of those who are led by the Spirit and assured of of God's fatherly love. And we'll see that in the next verses next time. In other words, it's that rich, abundant, satisfying life that can be enjoyed only by those who put their misdeeds to death. In other words, it's the abundant life that Jesus promised. The abundant life. You will live the abundant life. You'll experience what God has for you in this life if you put the deeds of the flesh to death. So even the pain of mortification is worthwhile if it opens the door to fullness of life. And this is one of the, the several ways in which we see that radical principle of life through death. It lies at the heart of the gospel. So I just want to conclude with, with, with two thoughts related to this, because the theme in the first part of, of uh, Romans was justification. We are justified by faith. And then now in Romans chapter 8, it's sanctification. You know, we, we got to die to something before we can be justified. We have to die to something before we know our sanctification and our holiness. And so according to Romans chapter 6, it is only by dying with Christ to sin, the penalty therefore paid by Jesus Christ, that we raise are raised to a new life of forgiveness and freedom. That's justification. And then up here, and according to Romans chapter 8, it's only by putting our evil deeds to death, it's only by putting our evil deeds to death that we experience the full life that God has for us as his children. And that's sanctification. I know that was a quick summary of some pretty tough verses, but may God add his blessing upon his word. Shall we pray? Father, I pray even now as we look forward to next week and uh, see what it means to live the fullness of life as being adopted into your family as children of God, being led by the Spirit, Father. But I pray as, as we go through even this next week, this next day, even these next hours, Father, as the temptations come into our lives, as sin tries to enter in, Father, I pray that you would show us how as a way of life to be able to put those misdeeds, those sins to death. To take them out of our life. We know that we will not be able to do this perfectly. There will be times when we won't do it very well. And we will succumb to the temptations that come before us, Lord. But we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Who gives us the strength. We thank you for the promises of God. That if we confess our sins. God, you are faithful and righteous. To forgive us of our sins. And cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.